live here, stay here, or at least come back uh, very, very uh, often. Uh, I am uh, I'm not officially a Chabad person, but I'm what you call a friend of Chabad. I have a long, long relationship with uh, Shaluchim going back uh, many, many years. Yes. What makes someone officially a Chabad person? Uh, well, number one, that, that they follow, at, at a minimum, the minhagim of Chabad, uh, and I don't particularly follow the minhagim of Chabad. And number two, uh, they regard the, the Rebbe as the uh, absolute uh, final. I consider the Rebbe to be one of the great, greatest tzaddikim of, of the generation, of course. Uh, but the relationship of a Rebbe to a chassid is a very unique relationship. It's not simply, I mean, I mean, you'll hear about this, it's not simply he was a great man. So in that sense, I, I, you know, I'm not sure. But, but be it as it may, uh, as I say, I have a very strong relationship with many, many shluchim all over the world, and therefore, my note uh, let me under the wire with the permission. As long as I don't talk about Hasidus, I don't, really <laughs> I don't have my Hasidus license officially. Although once in a while, I even bring that up a little bit. So essentially, this is a uh, course in contemporary halachic issues, and uh, the dilemma that I have is that uh, it never really ends because uh, when we go. You know, because every new class has also people from an old class. So consequently, uh, anything that I talk about that might be new for a lot of you might be old to some of you. So that's why I apologize, because I constantly go over uh, some topics uh, several times. But uh, hopefully, uh, they will be uh, somewhat interesting. We do medical ethics. We do family ethics. We do uh, different uh, environmental issues. And uh, I want to emphasize that if there's anything in particular you would like uh, me to talk about it, you would like a class on, uh, please either mention it in a class or send me an email. I, I answer a lot of emails. I answer them very quickly. Uh, my email address is uh, judge5, I'm not a judge, but it's judge5, <laughs> J-U-D-G-E, the number five, number, at AOL.com. So I'm one of the people that still has AOL. Yeah. Not, not too many of us are around. Uh, and as I say, uh, if you have any question I can help you with, uh, Please feel free to email me, and in particular, if you have something you want uh, to have discussed in class, uh, email would be a, uh, a good way. It's to also on the staff contact. Oh, okay. Okay. That's very, very funny. And uh, again, as I say, uh, welcome. And I thought uh, I would start a little bit, since uh, you know you've come to Eretz Israel at least for the summer. I want to talk about some aspects regarding Aliyah and living in the land of Israel. Is it an obligation? Is it, is it a mitzvah? Is it a good thing to do? Is it a bad thing to do? Like how would, from the standpoint of halacha, how would we analyze the concept of living in the land of Israel? So first of all, you know, everyone has heard of the Rambam, of course, Rav Moshe ben Maimon, uh, called Maimonides, that means son of Maimon. And you should also know uh, a person who was the generation after um, Rav Moshe ben Maimon, and that is Rav Moshe ben Nachman, that is abbreviated Ramban. So it's, sometimes it's hard to hear the difference, but these are two very, very important and very, very different rabbis, Rambam and Ramban, and they argue about a whole bunch of things, although their lives overlapped, but Ramban never met Rambam. Rambam died when Ramban was a teenager, but still Ramban often argues with Rambam. Their backgrounds were different. Maimonides lived in Islamic-occupied Egypt. That's where the Maimonides lived. Nachmanides, Ramban, lived in Catholic Spain. So the culture was very different. But uh, 
the debates between Rambam and Ramban are one of the most interesting and exciting aspects of advanced Jewish law. So we know that when we go back to the Rambam, go back to Maimonides, Maimonides wrote a book called Sefer HaMitzvos. In fact, Chabad makes a very big deal about that Sefer. It's one of the things that you're recommended to learn every day. That's the 613 Mitzvot of the Torah uh, with a very brief explanation. Just be sure people understand the bibliography here. Uh, you need to know the difference between Sefer HaMitzvos and Mishneh Torah. Two different works of the Rambam. Mishneh Torah is the Rambam's code of Jewish law. That is 14 big volumes, typically printed in you know, five or six volumes, but it's 14 books, and it is a complete statement of all of Jewish law, both the Jewish law that applies today and even the Jewish law that does not yet apply, such as the laws of sacrifices and the like. Right, so the Mishnah Torah is massive, and the Mishnah Torah, although we don't always follow it. It was kind of superseded by the Shulchan Aruch. But the Mishnah Torah does remain the survey of all of the halachos of the oral law. Every rule that's in the Babylonian Talmud or the Jerusalem Talmud is codified in the Mishnah Torah. Now, that itself is a fascinating question because in the Gemara, you often have arguments. The Gemara doesn't give you a final ruling. How did Maimonides know who to follow, right? That's the whole methodology, but he gives you a final ruling. But before he wrote the Mishnah Torah, he wrote a much smaller work, almost as an introduction to the Mishnah Torah. And that smaller work is called Sefer HaMitzvos, in which he briefly, using just a paragraph, he briefly describes the 613 mitzvos of the Torah, so you'll have a general idea of what he is going to discuss. So just to give you an example, in the Sefer HaMitzvos, when he reaches Shabbos, he simply says, you know, there's a mitzvah not to do work on Shabbos, and he quotes the Pasuk, and he says, and there are 39 categories of work, and that's it. Right? So Shabbos will be like one paragraph. When you go to the Mishnah Torah, you will see 24 chapters of complicated rules, right? So Sefer HaMitzvos does not give you all the halachos, it just explains what each mitzvah is. That's why, you know, in Chabad, the, Re the Rebbe had a hanhaga that he wanted, uh, not so much for the women, although some women do it too, but for the male Hasidim, that they should learn optimally three prakim of the Mishnah Torah every day so they would finish the whole Mishnah Torah every year. That is a very, very hard uh, pace. And then for people who can't do that, and most people cannot actually, uh, he recommended one perik a day. And one perik a day, you would finish the Mishnah Torah every three years. And the Rebbe said this was a tremendous thing because this actually meant you would be finishing not just the written Torah in the Chumash, but you would be finishing essentially all of the Torah Shabal Peh. I mean, you know, unless you're a Gaon, you can't, almost nobody could finish the Talmud in a year or even three years. But maybe the Rambam, with some effort, you'd be able to finish and you're getting all the information that's in the Talmud. But for many people, even that is very hard. It's very hard to learn a whole chapter of the Rambam. It's a lot of laws. So the Rebbe suggested is kind of a uh, backup, it's already the third level, so to speak, that you learn some Sefer HaMitzvot every day. And that way, even if you're not going to learn all the detailed halachos, at least you'll have a sense of exactly what the commandments of the Torah is. 
And that, I think, uh, even women were encouraged to do, because it's good to know the mitzvahs of Hashem. I mean, you can read the Chumash, but you don't always know what's a mitzvah, what's not. Even if you read the... It's all from the Chumash, but it's not always clear, you know, what is an absolute, what is the actual commandment, and that's what the Sefer and Mitzvah says. Okay, so this was a bibliographic introduction, so you know the difference between Sefer HaMitzvos and uh, Mishnah Torah. Now, the way the Rambam divides Sefer HaMitzvos is a little bit of an unusual order. There's a reason I'm going to get back to Aliyah, and this is this way of laying the foundation. Uh, how many mitzvahs are there? Everybody knows there are 613 mitzvahs, right? How do we know this? The Talmud itself tells us there are 613 mitzvahs, and it derives it in a very interesting, indirect way. It says, Torah Siva Lanu Moshe. Moshe commanded us through God, or from God, rather, the Torah. Okay, now you know every Hebrew word can also be turned into a number. That's called gematria. What is the gematria of Torah? Tough is 400. Oh, is it up there? No, it's... Uh, oh, okay. So tough, 400... Vav, 6, so four, uh, 406. Resh, 200, 606. And Hey, 5, 611. Mm. Mm-hmm. As the expression goes, close but no cigar. <laughs> it's not 613, it's only 611. <laughs> ah, so here's what the Gemara says, ingenious answer. Moshe gave us from Hashem 611 because two commandments we heard from God. Mm-hmm. We didn't hear it from Moshe. Mm-hmm. Which two commandments did we hear directly from God? The first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God that took you out of Egypt. First of all, what, what type of commandment is that? I'll, I'll get that in a moment. And the second, you shall not have any other God, small g, besides me. So, then what happened? We got scared and we begged Moshe, please, 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 you talk to Hashem and tell us what the commandments were. So the rest of the Torah, we didn't hear from Hashem. The rest of the Torah, Hashem said it to Moshe, and Moshe gave it to him. Now, of course, when Moshe spoke, the divine voice came out of Moshe's mouth, but it was still Moshe who was standing in front of us. So now it's, it's beautiful. Moshe gave us 611, and the first two commandments we heard from Hashem, so 611 plus 2 is 6. 13. As a parenthetical uh, comment, why is that first thing called a commandment? I am Anochi Hashem Elokecha. I am the Lord your God, Asher Hotsei Sicha Meyeretz Mitzrayim, who took you out of the land of Egypt. That's the that's the so-called first commandment. What is it commanding? Commandments are do something or don't do something. So the second one is a commandment. You shall not believe in any other gods. That's a commandment. But the first one is a statement. Um, so Hashem, you said that Hashem gave the first two. Like, how did he rela- like say it to the Jewish people? Well, it's, it's, hard, it's hard. Yeah, yeah. We're standing at Mount Sinai, mm-hmm. and there's thunder and lightning, <laughs> and there's a shofar blast, mm-hmm. and the cloud, and the mountain is covered with clouds, and there's fire. And we hear the voice of Hashem. And every time Hashem spoke, our neshamas left our body. We died. We died in fact. 
And then Hashem revived us. And he said the next word, and we died again. We kept on dying. We could not live, as it were, and hear the voice of Hashem. We couldn't like, survive. We couldn't survive physically. Mm-hmm. Physically. Whether you understand that as fright, or whether you understand it on a much deeper level, that the goof, right? Again, uh, if you learn Tanya, you, you'll see that uh, when one is aware of the true unity of Hashem, there is what is called Bitol Hametzias. Sliding into Hasidus, I can't I go too much of it. But there's a concept that your whole essence becomes nullified in the in the essence of God. So whether you describe it that way or, or that way, uh, we couldn't. We couldn't remain a physical, discrete entity with that connection to the unity of God. So we needed, as it were, kind of a symptom, a kind of contraction, a kind of concealment. And therefore Moshe Rabbeinu was the vehicle by which Hashem was mitzamtzem. Hashem kind of concealed himself in a way that we were able to absorb it. So, but that, but that, but that, but, 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 but the first two, there was no symptom, so to speak. The first two, we were directly connected to the overwhelming unity of God. And that's why we could not survive as a physical entity. It's exactly right. uh, what Chaylet, you know, Beis of the Tanya, Sefer Yichud Vermuna talks about. Okay. Alrighty, so that's how you get 613. But my question simply is, how is the first statement a commandment at all? So the Rambam answers that. The Rambam says the first statement is a commandment. It's the commandment to believe in God. That there is the God. And why does it say, I am the God who took you out of Egypt? Shouldn't it say, I'm the God who created the world? That's a, that's a bigger thing, right? The answer is no. Because some people say, Hashem created the world, but he's no longer involved. Right? He created the world, and the world operates by itself. Yetzias Mitzrayim teaches us that Hashem doesn't simply create the world and then leave it alone, but He's involved in running the world every single millisecond. It's even more important than gracious. Okay. Yeah. Of course, I was going to say, right now, now, interestingly enough, Ramban has many comments on the Sefer HaMitzvah. He disagrees with the Rambam on a lot of issues. And the Ramban has a logical argument. He says, wait a second. How can there be a commandment to believe in God? If I already believe that there's a God giving me a commandment, I don't need a commandment. And if I don't believe in God, then who's commanding me? Right. It's like I'm talking to an atheist. And I say, to, I say to an atheist, you must believe in God. And the atheist says, why? He says, because God commanded it in the Torah. Th- that doesn't make sense. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe in it, so he doesn't believe the Torah comes from God. So the Ramban asks the Kasha, Emuna cannot be a commandment. Emuna is a prerequisite for all the other commandments. Yes, of course, without emuna, there's no mitzvah. But emuna cannot be a mitzvah in and of itself because if you don't believe, there's nothing in the mitzvah that's going to make you believe. And if you already believe, then you don't need a mitzvah to believe. That's the Ramban's kasha. So the Ramban actually is cholek. Cholek meaning he differs with the Rambam. And he says, Anochi is not a mitzvah. It is what is called a yesod. A yesod meaning it is a 
foundation for mitzvahs, but it itself cannot be a mitzvah. Now, this is a pretty strong question. How would the Rambam answer that? The Rambam does count it as a mitzvah. And let me point out, based on the Gemara I told you, the Gemara seems to count it as a mitzvah, because that's how the Gemara gets 613. Right? Moshe gave us 611, and the Gemara says, how do you get the other two? Anochi and lo yelecha, we heard from God. So the Gemara itself says, Anochi is a mitzvah. It's not just the Rambam. The Rambam got it from the Talmud, from the Gemara. So how do you answer the Ramban's argument? So the Meforshim explained that what the Rambam says is the following. Certainly a mitzvah to believe in God can only be meaningful to somebody who believes in God. Otherwise, there's no, who's commanding me? But the mitzvah is, if you believe in God because you were raised that way, you're obligated, this is the Rambam Shita, we don't always follow this, you're obligated to philosophically convince yourself on a rationalistic way. In other words, you who believe as a matter of faith, strengthen your belief by the process of rationality. Say again? This is Rambam. No, this is Rambam. Rambam. That's why there's a mitzvah of Amuna. Uh, which means, according to the Rambam, Maimonides, the philosophical exploration of the proofs for the existence of God are considered to be a mitzvah because that is the mitzvah of Amuna. Now, obviously, you know that much, much of, of the religious world does not follow, including most, most of the Hasidic world, does not follow this view in particular. Meaning to say, although obviously whether it's in Hasidus or, or any, any other, or, or Kabbalah, we talk about the unity of God, we talk about the nature of God, but the one thing that, generally speaking, is not discussed that much are the ideas of the proofs of God. And in fact, this was actually considered to be something that was discouraged, because the fear would be, once you start making it a question which you're going to try to prove, then chas v'shalom, what if a person doesn't understand the proofs? They could become, you know, God forbid, an apichorus, a non-believer. So the general mahalach, the general approach in most of the religious world, and this is true whether it's uh, Chabad, whether it's other Hasidus, or whether it's Misnag, whether it's not Hasidim, is that generally speaking, we don't pursue what the Rambam says, but this is the Rambam's opinion. The Rambam held. This is what's called in Hebrew, called Chakira. Maybe you've heard of Chakira, is uh, philosophy. And uh, Hasidim will often say, Ein Darkeinu Bechakira. It's not our derech to do Chakira, etc. And that's because of the dangers that existed. Okay, all right. But be it as it may, that's how you get 613. Uh, yeah. So when Hashem, like the first commandment that he said is, I am Hashem, your father took you out yeah. of the shrine, um, was it just obvious to the Jewish people that he created the world, that it wasn't so necessary to say that after he said he took us out of the shrine? Uh, do you want to give an answer why he didn't have to mention creation of the world? Yes. Yeah. Th that could be. Of course, let me point out that it was even more obvious he took them out of the shrine because that just happened uh, 50 days before. Right? So uh, Hashem is reiterating what, what everybody already already knows. But the, the, the Mepharshim say that Hashem wanted to pick something that was familiar to them, something that they actually did experience, because that would be a more powerful connection to Hashem. Everything is more powerful if you actually lived that experience than if it's simply something Hashem did thousands of years, uh, years before. Okay. So anyway, uh, yeah. Yeah, the Derek mentioned Sechach, by the way. So 
Is that much sense? Yes, yes, it is. It is. Uh, <laughs> see, Chabad is a little different than, than most Hasidus. Most Hasidus actually uh, hates, hates philosophy. They don't want to do philosophy at all. Uh, Chabad, the whole name of Chabad, Chachma Bina Das, is a, a much more intellectualized and philosophical system than uh, most Hasidus is. So you will find in Chabad, obviously, starting from Tanya and really every, every Sefer, uh, will be full of philosophy, you know, philosophy mixed with Kabbalah, but there is like philosophy uh, as well. Uh, but generally speaking, you're not going to find discussions trying to prove that there's Hashem. For example, in the Moran of Uchim, if you look in the Rambam's Guide to the Perplexed, you will see the Rambam has prakim proving, trying to prove that there's one God. You will not find in, in, in Sefer Hasidus, even in Chabad, you will not find discussions because that's that's assumed right when you you know by the time you open up a, even say for like Tanya you know uh, we're not proving the Torah came from God like a lot of the questions beginners might ask we're not proving there is God in the world now that's that's assumed already anyone that's coming to Tanya already kind of has that foundation and the Tanya and really everything else since then is building on right the assumption that people already believe all of those things if you need to have those other ideas proven to you, then you gotta, you know, go to discovery or something. There are, there are seminars, uh, and indeed there are books like the Rambam himself, the Rambam Nevuchim, that talk about that. But that was not the mitzaya. That was not the the mitzaya of Hasidus, because Hasidus were dealing with a community of maminim, and given the fact they already were maminim, they wanted to know how they connect to Hashem, how they grow to Hashem, how do they understand Hakadosh Baruch Hu's ways. So you might call them questions, indeed, and they're philosophical questions, but, but they're building on a foundation that was assumed and didn't have to be proven. Like, for example, uh, you know, if you go to, uh, I, I, you know, I teach in Orsameh, so we have people who are new to Judaism, uh, that's in a men's division, in, in seminaries as well, so people will ask, how do I know the Torah wasn't made up? You know, you know these are those kinds. That, that's, uh, that's not what, let's say, Chabad is, is going to be talking about. Not that they can't answer it. I, I, you know, I assume they can, but, but that's, uh, that's, that's kind of not the framework of the issues that the Rebbeim were, were grappling with. I'm sorry, is there that hand up? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, isn't there an idea that you should know what, what to answer Tavi Kairos? Like? Yeah, so that's interesting. So some, some that, that's exactly, exactly right. That's a statement in the Gemara itself. Yeah. Know how to answer the Apikoros. That's the heretic. Right, so when people start attacking you, oh, who says you know God gave the Torah to Moses? Who says there was a splitting of the Red Sea? Maybe it's all made up. So you should be able to have some type of answer. And the Kutzker Rebbe used to say, "Know how to answer the Epicurus inside of you, <laughs> meaning inside of us." There's also a skeptic. All right, you know you're right, and th that's why, uh, you know, one should spend a certain amount of time. And in fact, some say today it's more important than it used to be because here's the problem. In Europe. Uh, when the communities were so religious. So many people were never exposed to heresy and apicorsis. So the concept was, why introduce questions to a person if they don't have those questions? But today, the problem is, all of us have been introduced to all sorts of things. All of us have heard of evolution. All of us have heard of dinosaurs. It's not like we're living in a world where we don't hear of these things. 
So some say, Bisman Hazeb, Bidafka, because we are exposed to all sorts of ideas that might, might be connected to Torah, we need maybe to delve into how the Torah deals with them, which wouldn't have been necessary in a more <coughs> insular culture. So, so you know, you do, you do have a point. Uh, but it's still true that uh, within the, the, the literature of the, of the Rebbeim, that that's not what, what is being addressed. Okay, so be it as it may, uh, that's the Shiloh, what is the mitzvah of Amunah, but now let's go back to the Sefer, so I'm giving you a very long introduction here, I haven't gotten to my main point yet, but hopefully uh, even, the inter- even the digressions are at least useful for you. That is, the way the Rambam wrote the Sefer HaMitzvah is a very funny way. He does not go, this is very important, he does not go in the order of the Torah. You might have assumed, if I'm making a list of the 613 mitzvahs, I will go in the order that they appear in the Torah. Starting from Pruervu, which is in Parshas Bereshis, and every, every Parsha, not every Parsha, most of Bereshis does not, but you know the Parshios have mitzvahs. There is a very famous book of mitzvahs, that follows the order of the Torah. Anyone knows what that is? Very, very famous. This is the Sefer HaChinuch. Very, very famous book of the 613 mitzvot. And that literally follows the order of the Torah. But the Sefer HaMitzvot of the Rambam, which was earlier, does not follow the order. Rather, this is what the Rambam does. Part one are the 248 positive mitzvot. Part two are the 365 negative mitzvahs. Now this is a little bit of a hard organization because that means things are scattered around. Let's take, for example, Shabbos. The mitzvah of Shabbos is both negative, do not do malacha, and also positive, you shall rest on Shabbos. So logically, you'd put them together, but no. The negative is discussed in part one, and the positive is discussed in part two, even though they're dealing with the same topic. So you have to kind of go back and forth and figure out. So that's one thing he did. The other thing is, even within the organization of positives and negatives, he does not follow the order of the Torah. It's not even clear to this day what exactly, what order did he follow. It's a mysterious order. Uh, it seems to be the outline, the order that he followed in the Mishnah Torah is what the Sefer HaMitzvah was an outline for that. Okay. So that's part one and part two. Now, a bit of numerology. 613 altogether, that's fine. But the positive commandments, called mitzvos ase, 248. In Hebrew, that's ramach. Ramach is reish mem ches, 248. And negative commandments, thou shalt not shasa, shin samachei, 365. If you're good in math, 248 and 365 equals 613. Now, is there a significance in the 248 and the 365? There absolutely is. 248. It is said that we have 248 bones in our body. Bones. As a result, it says every time you do a positive mitzvah, there is a spiritual life force that gives life to the bone. What that means is not clear. I mean, 
do people who don't do mitzvahs, do they have higher rates of arthritis? Like, like what, exactly, <laughs> what exactly happens? It's, it's a spiritual thing, but it's hard for us to understand what spiritual process happens to your bones. It's hard for us to fully understand that. But the 248 are connected your bones. And the 365, the Gemara gives two explanations. One is, it corresponds to your sinews. Your sinews are like your ligaments and tendons. That every time you do a negative, you're damaging spiritually one of your tendons. And when you keep the negative commandment, then your tendons are going to be in good health, whatever that means spiritually. And the other interpretation of 365 although it's peculiar that we use this solar measure, is 365 is the length of a solar year. Although it's not a, Jew, it's not a Jewish year, but 365 is a solar year. And uh, you keep the year, you keep the Zaman in a state of holiness by not violating the negative commandments. So the Rambam divides it. Part one are the 248 mitzvot say. Part two is the 365 low sasas. Yeah. Um, is there a different way of counting the bones than current science? Yes, so, so there, there is a problem here. First of all, uh, in the case of, of women, uh, you don't have 248. Uh, you have a few less. And even in the case of men, you have a few less. Uh, what, what I've seen is this. The 248 are the number of bones, actually, in the average 16-year-old boy, because at some point by 18 or so, uh, a lot of cartilage between some bones fuses and becomes a single bone. So actually, uh, an older adult, male, has fewer than 248. But, but I think if you go back to uh, younger children, uh, let's say they hit below the age of 16 or whatever, you will actually find uh, there's a, there is a 248. Turns out to be a surprisingly accurate, accurate number. But but the reason why there's some uncertainty is, as I say, uh, there is sometimes cartilage between two bones, which confuse the bones. Mm -hmm. That that's why the count would be thrown off a little bit. Yeah. Is, um, is the argument of the solar year a strong one? The argument of the following 365 of the solar year. Yes. Yeah, well, the truth of the matter, though, a, a year is not really, see, a, 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 sol, a solar month is a man-made concept. But a year, uh, 365 is an approximation of the amount of time it takes for the Earth to make one revolution around the sun. It's 365 and a fourth, whatever it would be. So that is a natural phenomenon. A lunar month and a solar year are natural phenomena a solar month and a lunar year are not. A lunar year is simply 12 lunar months and the A week is also, of course, a week is a divine concept of Shabbos, but a week is not a natural astronomical Is that phenomenon. why the Jewish calendar is a combination of solar year and lunar month? Uh, yes, that, that mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense because those are, those are distinct patterns that Hashem put into the, into the brief. <coughs> So 365 does have some significance, at least as an approximation. It's not, it's certainly not, not exact. Uh, now, yeah. 
No, the 248 are bones, and the 365 are, are the ligaments or tendons. Yeah, that's a 365. The 248 are just bones. Now, uh, let me raise an interesting question again, since we're digressing. I'll, I'll give you another digression here. That is, is there any person in the world who is able to keep all 613 mitzvahs? No, no. Never. You could be the greatest, greatest tzaddik who ever lived. It would be impossible. Some are mitzvahs only for men, like tefillin, and some are mitzvahs only for women. Right? Can't be both. Be both today, whatever, but okay. Can't be both. Uh, many are only in Eretz Yisrael. Many are only when there's a base hamikdash. Many only apply under specific circumstances. So, if I need the whole 613 for my bones and my ligaments, then by definition, I could be the greatest tzaddik in the world, and I'm a cripple, I'm, a def I'm defective. How could Hashem create a system in which every single mitzvah correlates to your body, and you can't do it no matter what? Right? That seems unfair. That doesn't seem right. He's creating a system where I need this mitzvah for this bone, and I can't do it. So the Swarim give us two very interesting answers. Answer number one is, this is one of the reasons why learning Torah is so important. One of the reasons. And this is a relatively simple reason. Because when I learn Torah, I can connect even to the mitzvahs I'm not able to do with Misa. Misa is action. I can still connect to the light of that mitzvah through machshava, through thought, and through dibor. So the light of the mitzvah that permeates my bones and my ligaments can come to me through the path of machshava and dibor, even when it cannot come to me through the path of maisa. And that's why people sometimes make the argument, why do I have to learn parts of the Torah that don't apply? Why do I? The laws of leprosy, the laws of sacrifices, they don't apply. Now, it's true. You have to put more of your energy to things that you actually have to apply, like Shabbos and the like. But people say, why is it important to learn about sacrifices? In many ways, maybe it's even more important. Because precisely because I'm not able to do it in the realm of action, I need to connect to that light through the realm of Dibor, uh, speech, and Machshava. That's answer number one, how I get all 613 by connecting to that mitzvah on that particular level. There's a second answer that's also interesting. And the second answer is, this is Avat Yisrael, unity and love. How does that work? Let's say a man puts on tefillin on his left arm. When, he, when we ask him, what did you do today? He's not going to say, my arm put on tefillin. He's going to say, I put on tefillin because the arm is part of me. My arm is not a separate thing. It's me. So here's the thing. When you connect to Am Yisrael through love and togetherness, you become like a limb on a body or a cell on a body. And as a result, that body is a past, present, future. So as a result, the mitzvahs that were done by the men are the mitzvahs that are done by the women. 
because it's all done by the body of Knesset Yisrael. The mitzvahs of the past are the mitzvahs of the present. The, also, say again? Sorry, does that also apply to Averis? Uh, yes, mm-hmm. that, that's the downside of Kol Yisrael Arevins, that was every Jew is responsible for each other, right? So consequently, when you have Avas Yisrael, all of our mitzvahs are intermingled because at the shoulders, at the root of our soul, we are all united. Masha'en came. If you have hatred or indifference towards people, you're separated. When you're separated, you have your mitzvahs, but you don't have all of the mitzvahs that other people are doing. Right? So these are two different ways in which I could get the light of the 613, even on the commandments I can't do. One is the pathway of Torah, where I connect to the mitzvah in the realm of machshava and dibur, right? speech, uh, thought and speech, even if I can't do maizah, I can't do deed. And the second level is through unification to Knesset Yisrael, I become part of the organism of Klau Yisrael. And therefore, just like, you know, when I put spillin on my left arm, my, my leg still did the mitzvah, my leg, which is part of me, you know, we did, we did the mitzvah. So I become kind of part of Knesset, the Knesset Yisrael, yeah. Yeah, well, this, this is an important thing to keep in mind. Uh, Chazal have a saying, which is repeated many places, every Jew is responsible for every other Jew. That means every Jew is like a guarantor. Imagine if you're a guarantor alone, and hopefully don't become one, but a guarantor basically means if he doesn't pay up, you got to pay. And that basically means Hashem holds the whole Jewish people responsible for the sins of any group of Jews because we're all one. Now that's why one of the reasons why we have such a mitzvah to try to teach and bring Judaism to people uh, because it's not just about them. In other words, I might have the attitude, oh, who cares about them? I'm okay, I'm doing fine. Well, I'm not doing fine. If there's anybody out there who is not keeping Hashem's Torah, I could be held responsible for that. And that's why I have to try to do what I can. But why, if there's free will, then why, like if that person is choosing to do so, then why does it affect everyone? No, you're right, 100%. Obviously, that doesn't let the person off the hook. There is free will, there's accountability, there's responsibility. But Hashem is always going to ask of us, did you do everything you could? Now, again, if a person really did everything he could, you know, that's, that'll be your defense, so to speak. But when we have indifference and we don't care enough, that's going to be a, a claim uh, against us. Uh, we have to really care. Now, again, you have to do this with common sense. Uh, I mean, everyone knows, you know, uh, it's not so much you don't go on a soapbox and start preaching, uh, uh, you know, or going over to your next-door neighbor and say, uh, I don't want you to mow your lawn on Shabbos, you know, it's not right. You, you know, obviously you have to reach people with love and with care and with concern and with respect. There's a whole way of doing it in the right way that's extremely important. But nevertheless, we try to bring Torah to people, invite them to your house, hospitality, warmth. Again, what, uh, what Shalukim do, right? Chabad is, is, a, is a perfect uh, example of, of how to bring, try to bring people back to, back to Hashem. In fact, it's interesting. The Rebbe had a saying, you know, the, the phrase that is used to bring somebody back is called Kirov Rechokim. Kirov Rechokim means take people who are far 
and bring them close. It's a very common phrase. Everybody says, Kira Rechokim. The Rebbe didn't like it. The Rebbe said, Kira Rechokim implies that the Jew is far away and you have to bring him close. He says, every Jew is already close and beloved to Hashem. So you're not taking somebody far away and bringing him. You're taking somebody who's already close to Hashem and you just want to make him more aware of what, of what that relationship is. That's actually a very, very uh, beautiful point. Yeah. Um, I actually want to back up yeah. Ramban, Ramban. Ramban Nachmanides. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, what are the two missing mitzvahs according to him? So it's really no, no. Only, well, one. only one. Only one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so this is an interesting point. Uh, you're 100% correct. This is what we call a zero-sum game, because since you're always wedded to the number of 613. So every time, in fact, the Ramban does this a few times. Every time you take away a mitzvah, you've got to put something else in. So the truth of the matter is, I can't tell you on a one-to-one basis. Basically, the Ramban differs with the Rambam on around 10 or 11 points and puts in 11 new ones. And in fact, one of them we'll talk about. But you are correct. You have to keep it in balance. You can't just take away one. And do people yeah. generally go with like his opinion or with Ramban's? Uh, well, usually it's uh, Maimonides, okay. usually. But, but, you know, we'll see. Uh, when it comes to living in Israel, we'll see many follow Ramban, as, as we because, will see. Because, um, can I, like, argue with him for just a yeah, second? Yeah, of course, sure. Um, I don't think, like, when you say Amuna is a prerequisite for a mitzvah, like, yeah. I don't really think that's true. Like, you couldn't, an atheist who doesn't believe, like, could totally put on tefillin and it will still count, right? Well, you know, th- this is, you know, again, you're, you're raising a fascinating question. You know, uh, as you know, you know, one of the Rebbe's mitzayim, still very, very done a lot, uh, the Rebbe's project is tefillin, right? That, uh, I, guess it, I guess you don't get stopped, but, you know, when, when men walk through the airport, uh, the shaliach asks them, are you Jewish, etc. And if you're, if you're Jewish, uh, do you want to put on tefillin? And they put on tefillin. Now, some of the people who put on tefillin, may not believe in God, right? They may, they may, but either they're doing it uh, for sentimental reasons, or they're doing it because the shaliach is bothering them too much, they want to get him up his back, or they're doing it, whatever, whatever the reason. So the interesting question is, your question is actually a very fascinating question. Are you doing a mitzvah if you don't believe in God? Now, there were those who, cr- who criticized the Rebbe's tefillin mitzvah for exactly that reason. They said, what are you accomplishing by putting tefillin... Now again, the, Re- the Rebbe's point was this. There's a, the Gemara has a special rule that if a person put on tefillin even once in their life, once in their life, they're elevated to a certain level. So the Rebbe's argued that even if someone's not going to put on tefillin again, and often they would, but even if they're not going to do it again, once in their life is a very special aliyah, very special elevation. Okay. And that is true. That is in the Gemara. But the criticism was, but that only should work if you believe in Hashem. If you don't believe in Hashem, how could there be a mitzvah without believing in Hashem? So that's the question. In other words, that's exactly the question. <coughs> Can you do a mitzvah and not believe in Hashem? Uh, some, some have said that you cannot, but, but the reason why we still put tefillin on a non-believer 
is it may bring him to believe in Hashem, meaning it's kind of like a preliminary. It's not an actual mitzvah yet, but it's a stage that can bring a person to a mitzvah. Not believing in God, like what would you say that is? Like a disconnect between like your soul and, I don't know, if your heart or mind like in this world? Because like, you're doing a mitzvah for your soul, not for your heart or mind. No, I understand that, but, but here's my, my question. Yeah, yeah, of course, you, you are doing a mitzvah for your soul, but is that what you think you're doing? Me- meaning to say, if you don't believe in God, what do you think you're doing? If you don't believe in God, do you believe you have a soul? See, that, that's the question. Right, uh, but it's going to affect it either way. So, so, so that's the question. The question becomes, is it... Okay, what, what affects your soul? Is it the objective physical action or is it the objective physical action coupled with a realization well, I think at the most minimal level it would be just the action okay. if you can find the meaning behind it yeah. obviously that much more okay so, so, that, so, so this would be again this is something to explore uh, uh, Tanya talks about it a lot Tanya talks about the idea that love of Hashem and fear of Hashem he quotes the Zohar, are the two wings <coughs> that bring your mitzvah up to Hashem, but they are the wings, meaning they are secondary. The, the Iker is the Mai, right? That, that's the whole thesis of the Balatanya, that the, the most important thing is the action itself. And the wings, you know, bring it up to a higher and higher and higher level. But even if you're correct, and again, you might you might be correct, that, that's a debate. Again, the, the, I think the Rebbe apparently did take the position that the action itself is powerful and meaningful and important, even if the person is not yet at a level or a state where he has any conscious awareness of what's going on. I think the Rebbe would look at mitzvot the way we would look at food for a starving person. Right? If I'm starving and the food goes in is put into me, even if I'm unconscious, no, assuming I don't choke, whether it's intravenous, it's, deliver, it's delivered to me in a way that I can take it, it is going to benefit, it's going to feed my body, even without my kavana. I think the Rebbe was saying, mitzvos are very much the same way. They are a food that connects you to God, even if you have no awareness at all. Uh, the, the others, others have argued, but, but, but the point I want to make is that doesn't undermine Ramban's point. And the reason is, the Ramban was not making the point uh, only that uh, you can't have a mitzvah without emunah. He was making the point that you can't have a mitzvah to believe in God unless you already believe in him. He was focusing on this. If I give you a mitzvah to believe in God, if you don't already believe in him, why, why should you listen? That's what he said. What's going what's to make you listen? That was his point. And that's why he didn't want to count it as a, a separate mitzvah. Yeah, but like... Why not like get credit for it? You know, if you oh, oh, so you're saying you're saying an interesting idea that God wants to give us credit for something we're doing anyway. Or that, for that, like coming to do, or will do okay, that, or whatever. I mean, you know. No, I understand. Well, that, that's a good point. In other words, yeah, I believe in God, and God's even making it a mitzvah. So that way, it's like uh, I get points for doing what I already am doing anyway. That that could be that that could be an answer. It could be an answer as well. But I think, I think you would admit that if a person truly does not believe in God, a commandment to believe in God is not going to change his mind. <laughs> it's not going to change. Because he doesn't believe it comes from God. 
Right, that, that's the Ramban's logical uh, conundrum with a mitzvah of, 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 of emunah. So nowadays, is it only Chabad that like, has that theory that you should do the action of yours, or is it like all Chabad? Well, I tell you, the truth of the matter is, I, I don't think it's unique to Chabad. I mean, Chabad was criticized for it because they do it in a public way, but I mean, even in my yeshiva, I mean, uh, boys come from my yeshiva, and some of them don't believe in Hashem, but we still encourage them to put on tefillin, mm-hmm. so really we're all secret Chabadniks. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but, I, but I, think, I think the theory is, might be a little different, meaning to say the theory might be that even if right now it's not accomplishing, but it's a way of bringing a person to a state. And so the question becomes, is it actually doing the spiritual work or is it a stepping stone? But operationally, uh, both are doing the same thing. We're putting right. fill-in on people who do not yet believe uh, in the mitzvah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I asked this question to someone recently, like of yeah. the whole thing of like action versus intention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see how in like the, the not-obavish world, they very often have like a, a bigger focus on like the, for example, like if they're, um, Say debate in the yeshiva world that's been going on for 100, 100 years already because the typical advanced yeshiva learning is extremely slow. You do like, uh, like one page uh, over, over six months with every possible commentary and you don't cover basic information. Right? So that's, uh, don't, don't, don't get me started on that. I spent half, half of my time uh, criticizing that in my other place. Um, you know, it's interesting that you're describing almost uh, a reversal. You know, uh, when the Tanya was written, and you have to know, you know, the, his, the history of the Tanya is, I don't know, uh, I assume that, you know, when, when you learn Tanya, some of the history of the Tanya is also discussed, because it's a very, very fascinating history. The Alter Rebbe's Tanya was a very revolutionary, I'm, I'm speaking objectively, it was a very revolutionary book, but it was revolutionary not only against Misnagdim, it was revolutionary in the Hasidic world, which was not that old then. It was really, in fact, the Alter Rebbe was, was as criticized by Hasidim, other Hasidim, as he was by Misnagdim. And that's because uh, early Hasidus totally stressed Kavana was the most important thing. Kavana, 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 inner emotional states. And they sometimes taught exactly what you said to Misnagdim. They sometimes taught a mitzvah without Kavana is worthless. Now that resulted in some very bad things. That resulted in people who felt they didn't have to keep all the halachas because if they weren't doing it with kavana, what's the purpose? You know, why should I eat matzah if I'm not, you know, totally connected to Hashem? So in the Tanya, well, first of all, the Alter Rebbe wrote the Shulchan Aruch. The Alter Rebbe was very, very connected to halacha. He was very, very great in halacha. He is a posek that is quoted by every every sefer halacha, even misnagdim. I mean, the Mishnah Brura. I mean. Shulchan Aruch is one of the great Sifrei Halacha. But even in Tanya, that's why he writes Hamasa Huayikr. The most important thing is Maisa. He's not writing that to the Misnagdim. He's writing that to the Hasidim. 
the Maita who ate him. At the same time, he was critical of the Misnagdim who were putting too much emphasis, the opposite of what you're saying now, on the Maisa, and they weren't paying attention to the Kavana. So, you know, there's an old saying, when you walk in the middle of the road, you get hit by traffic on both sides. Uh, the Alter Rebbe was taking a Mahalech, which was trying to combine the importance of the Maisa and the importance of Kavana at a time when the non-Chabad Hasidic world was emphasizing Kavana and the Misnagate world was emphasizing mechanical Misa, and the Alter Rebbe says you have to combine both. That's why the Tanya was quite a revolutionary work in that way. So it's interesting that you, you, the way you're describing it now, it's like the Hasidim became the Misnagdim and the Misnagdim became the Hasidim. Because the classic critique of early Hasidus was it overemphasized Kavana at the expense of Misa. You understand the problem. You see this in the world today. When people are sometimes very spiritual people, they want new age spirituality, they're not, they don't like halacha. In other words, a person might say, I want to be connected to God. You're telling me if I rip toilet paper on Shabbos, you know, I'm not connected to God. In other words, you understand the idea that sometimes the spiritual temperament is not comfortable with halachic rules. And the other way around, the person of halachic rules tends to be kind of rigid and mechanical and not thinking about Hashem. So you see the sakana. One person becomes dry and unfeeling and mechanical, and the other person is like airy, flying in the air, but not rooted in the maisa that Hashem commanded us to do. So the Alter Rebbe is dealing with these two types of spiritual seekers, and he's trying to create a, a composite where you need to have both. That's why just a matter of, uh, of history that the Tanya is quite a, Likutei uh, Amara is a uh, revolutionary work in that particular way. Uh, yeah? Oh, sorry, I was wondering when you use some of the words, can you re-explain? Okay, okay I, I apologize. Sorry. Yeah, 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 yes. Yeah. So, uh, I'll try to. Uh, I don't know, yeah, 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 uh, you wouldn't remember it, but do you have any particular thing you want me to go over? There are like yeah. two M words that you use. Okay, okay, okay. So Masa is deed. Machshava is thought. So we talk, we talk about uh, everything Everything we do exists on three planes. There is the plane of thought, speech, action. So the point I was making earlier is that even though there are many mitzvot, many commandments, we cannot do in the realm of action. But the light of those commandments can permeate our soul because by learning about them and studying them, we can engage our thought and our speech. And that kind of captures the light of that commandment. And that's why learning is so important. Even the parts of the Torah that are not relevant. You think, why should I learn by things that aren't relevant? The answer is because the light of Hashem is in every part of the Torah. And if I can't do it, the only way I get that light is by thought and, and uh, speech. Okay? Yes. Uh, okay, machshava is thought. Machshava, Dibor is speech. That's not a mem word, but Dibor. And Maaseh or Maaseh, I can't pronounce it. The Yiddish they pronounce Maaseh or Maaseh is action. Huh? Yeah, yeah. These are three words. You should you should actually know these three words because it's in your Hasidus it's going to come up uh, quite a lot. Machshava, Dibor, Maaseh. 
Okay, it comes up all the time. So where are we in the class? Like, uh -huh. Where are we in the class right now? I'm really like... We're still in like the uh, grade. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't start the topic yet. But you didn't? Yeah. No, no, it, it's the topic. But I, I, I'm just laying a foundation. Um, yeah, that was a <laughs> question. Yeah. Yeah, well, again, I mean, you're going to, you know, you're, you're going to have uh, sheer, you know, class after class on this. And I don't want to, uh, you know, as I say, cross my boundaries. Uh, but, but you'll see that uh, when, when the Balatanya talks about fear, he really connects it much more to love. It's fear not to lose the loving connection with God. Ultimately, it's about love. And the love, the desire to be connected is so strong that you are afraid of losing the connection with love. So it's not the separate fear of being punished or, or whatever it is. It's a fear that's connected to Ava. Okay. Alrighty. Um, alrighty. So uh, the, these are the, again, Sefer HaMitzvahs, part one, part two. Okay. Now, based on the following, when you peruse, now I'm going to start my topic. Yeah. <laughs> when you peruse the 613 commandments of the Rambam, you will not find on the list a commandment that is called living in the land of Israel. It is not listed. Now, the Rambam doesn't say there isn't a mitzvah. This is, this is proof from a negative. But it's not on the list. There is no commandment called living in the land of Israel. You're saying Rambam. My mind. Yeah, yeah. So, at the end of the Sefer HaMitzvahs, Ramban has a list of commandments that he thinks Maimonides left out, that he should have put in. And obviously you understand, because the 613 number, every one you put in, you gotta take another one out. Okay, and then the Ramban does that. Oh, wow. But one of them, maybe the most important one, the most famous one, that Nachmanides puts in when Maimonides left out, is Ramban Nachmanides famously says there is a mitzvah in the Torah for a Jew to live in the land of Israel. I'll give you the verse in a moment. But uh, in Hebrew, this is called a mitzvah. Yishuv. Yishuv is dwelling. Yishuv Eretz Yisrael. So right off the bat, therefore, According to Maimonides, there, is, there seems to be no mitzvah to live in the land of Israel. According to Nachmanides, there is a mitzvah to live in the land of Israel. Now, where does Nachmanides see in the Torah? What is what? Where does Nachmanides see in the Torah there's right. a commandment to live in the land of Israel? Right. So this is, at the end of Chumash Bamidbor. You're going to read it in the Torah in a few weeks. Where it says, V'rishtem osah, you shall inherit the land. V'shavtem ba, and you shall dwell in the land. Ramban looks at that as a mitzvah. Well, 
Now, this is in Parshas Masai, the last Parsha in Bamidbor. Can you say it again? Sorry. Yeah, the, the words? Yeah. Vi osa, you shall inherit the land. Vi ba, and you shall dwell in the land. This is called Yishuv Eret Yisrael. And just to be sure you get the point, Nachmanides says, don't think this only applies when there's a temple. It even applies when there's no temple. It applies b'chal eis, all times, kol sha'ah, all, all, right, always. Meaning don't start saying, oh, it only applies when Mashiach comes, it only applies when this happens or that happens. No, <coughs> it applies always. This is Nachmanides, not Maimonides, right? This is Nachmanides. Don't do or do? Do. Say again? Do. You do, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't. Well, well, no, according to Nachmanides, it is a positive commandment. So uh, if you don't go, it's like you're not wearing tefillin. A man doesn't wear tefillin, or a man doesn't say shema, right? Is that a sin? It is a sin, because uh, you have an obligation to do something, right? Okay, now, uh, I'll, I'll, now before, before I get into a little more explanation, I just want to raise some biographical problems here. Let's look at Ramban's life for a moment. This is Nachmanides. Nachmanides spent almost all of his life in Catholic Spain. It was a Christian country. Nachmanides was considered to be the leading rabbi, both in that country and really almost all of Europe. This is after Maimonides died. And there's an interesting story. Nachmanides did reach the land of Israel in his 70s. And there's a story why. Towards the end of Nachmanides' life, he was summoned to a public debate about Judaism in front of King James of Aragon. Aragon, right? You may have heard of this. This is a, I think they made a play out of it. It's called the Disputation at Barcelona. What was that about? There was this Jewish guy who converted to Christianity, and he became a priest a Dominican friar. And he wanted to show, he hated the Jewish people, he hated the Jewish religion. He wanted to show, just like missionaries do today, that the Jewish Bible predicts Jesus as the Messiah, you know, take, taking different verses. And he wanted to show that even the Talmud believed that uh, Jesus was Moshiach. And the king ordered the Ramban to debate with this friar mm. about Judaism and Christianity. Now, the Ramban didn't want to do this because the Ramban thought this is a no-win proposition because if somehow he loses the debate, then God forbid Judaism has been discredited. Of course, that wouldn't happen. If he wins the debate, they may kill him because he's discrediting the church. So the Ramban really did not want to do this, but he was ordered to do this. The king said, you have to come. So we actually have a transcript. We actually have the debate. Uh, how, you know, the Ramban, this guy was raising this question and that question and that question and that attack, and the Ramban was answering it. And it was interesting that the priests didn't like the way the debate was going. They wanted to kind of pull the plug mm-hmm. on it early because they figured the Ramban would be humiliated and would be, you know, refuted, and that didn't happen. And, you know, they're hearing the Catholic Church getting weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker, so they wanted to pull the plug. They wanted to end the debate earlier. 
than expected. In fact, they did. Uh, and the king liked the Ramban a lot. And he said to the Ramban, I never heard a person defend a lie with so much eloquence. Meaning the, priest said, the, the king says, I don't believe a word you're saying, but you did such a good job. Anyway, uh, the priests wanted the Ramban executed. They wanted him, let me say, they wanted him to be killed because he defamed Jesus and the like. But because the king liked the Ramban, but the king himself was like beholden to the priests. So the king was able to change the sentence from death to exile. So when the Ramban was 70 years old, he was ordered to leave Spain. So that's pretty bad news. But the good news was he decided at the age of 70 to come to Eretz Yisrael. And indeed, he came to Eretz Yisrael. Uh, you will see, he, he started a show in Yerushalayim, and this show is still functioning. It is the oldest continuous show uh, in uh, the world, really. It's in the, from the 1200s. This is Beit Knesset Haramban. Not the one here, there's another one here, but this is in the old city. Uh, it's not the same building, but, but the same site. That has been a show in continuous use, except for 19 years, between 1948 mm -hmm. and 1967, in which no Jews were in Yerushalayim. But other than those 19 years, this is a continuous show. Is it near the Chorba? It's right near the Chorba, right, right near the Chorba, that's what it is. That's called Beis Knesset Haramban. Again, the building, don't misunderstand me, the building is not the same building, but that is the site of the Beit Knesset Haramban. And we have a letter that the Ramban wrote from the land of Israel in which he describes how desolate and empty and abandoned the land was. He actually says when he came to Yerushalayim, there was not even a minion of Jews in this city. And they had to get Jews from Hebron, etc. Now, there was a large Jewish population in Akko, which is not even a Jewish, so much of a Jewish city today. Uh, right, right up there, yeah, up north. That's where Jews were. Yushalayim, there were very few Jews. The Kotel, in those days, had accumulated so much garbage. Now, the whole level of the ground was so high that the Kotel was like six inches. Right? I mean, even now, there's so much of the Kotel under, under, under the present level. But there, you know, the, 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 you know, the ground was much, much, much higher because of garbage dumps over hundreds and hundreds of years, the Kotel was a tiny little thing above. So the Ramban uh, did die in, in Eretz Israel. What years are we talking about? So we're talking about uh, the early 1200s, the 1200s. But here's my question. By the way, the Ramban died in Egypt, but the Ramban, Maimonides, is buried in Israel. You know, where is the Ramban buried? Anyone, everyone knows where the Ramban yeah, is buried? The Ramban is buried in Tiberia, that, that's correct. Why is he buried in Tiberia? That's very odd. Because the Rambam died in Cairo. Cairo was the Rambam city. Fostet, which was the Jewish part of Cairo. Yes, the Rambam died in Egypt. The Rambam didn't die in, in Israel. Maimonides died in, 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 uh, in Egypt. Now, if you're going from Egypt to Israel, you're really going to hit Yerushalayim before you hit Tiberia. So Yerushalayim seems to be the most logical place to bury the Rambam. Mm -hmm. Like why they went all the way to Tiberia. So they say a certain uh, reason. That is, 
the Rambam was the one who codified all of the oral law, all of the Torah Shabbat. And Rabbi Akiva was considered to be the great master of the Torah Shabbat, the oral law. And Rabbi Akiva died a martyr's death and buried in Tiberia. So the Rambam is buried next to Rabbi Akiva. But be it as it may, where is the Ramban buried? Mysteriously, we don't know. That's so peculiar. Why wouldn't we know where Nachmanides is buried? And Nachmanides lived here. Okay, I don't have the answer to that question, but the question, the, the question I want to raise is, wait a second. Ramban maintains that living in Eretz Yisrael is a commandment of the Torah. It's a commandment. You have to do it. So I don't get it. If Nachmanides maintains that living in the land of Israel is one of the 613 commandments of the Torah, why didn't he come until he was kicked out of Spain? He should have gone on his own. Yeah, he got here, but he got here only because the king ordered him to leave Spain. So he figured once he's leaving, he might as well come to Israel. He didn't go on his own, and had the king not ordered him out, he would have stayed. So, this is an interesting question. How could Nachmanides understand that the Torah obligates you to live in Israel if Nachmanides himself didn't go until he was forced? Again, the fact that Maimonides didn't come, that's a separate issue. He didn't maintain it was a mitzvah. So, we don't really know, but I'll give you two possible answers. Again, historically, we're, we're a little bit in the doubt. Number one, all of us know the basic principle that you're never obligated to keep mitzvot if it endangers your life. Right? If a person uh, could be endangered by fasting on Yom Kippur, you're not allowed to fast. If a person, God forbid, has a heart attack on Shabbos, we call an ambulance or we even drive him to the hospital ourselves. This is the famous rule called pikuach nefesh. Saving a life overrides virtually the whole Torah, except for three commandments, idolatry, sexual immorality, and murder, where you have to give your life. Other than that, so here's the argument. In the 1200s, traveling to Israel was not like today. Get on an uncomfortable halal flight. Yeah, it's uncomfortable, for sure, especially if you're in coach. But okay, you know, it's 12 hours, 10 hours. 12 hours, whatever it is. In those days, the trip itself took months. There were pirates. There were bandits. There were wild animals. There were attacking barbaric tribes. One could make the argument that even if there's a mitzvah to live in the land of Israel, the nature of the trip, and even once you get to the land, the nature of all of the Christians and the Muslims that were fighting, you had, you had a legitimate exemption called pikuach nefesh. In other words, you don't have to give up your life or endanger your life for Eliyah. So maybe the Ramban had a heter, a heter means a dispensation, of pikuach nefesh. Now, some people make that argument even today. I'm sure you probably have friends and relatives that say, can't live in Israel. It is so dangerous to live in Israel. Right. Better to stay in Paris or Poway, California or Pittsburgh, right? All these safe places. 
right? Unfortunately, again, it's not something to joke about, but unfortunately, the world is a very dangerous place. And Israel has its dangers, but Baruch Hashem, it is not more dangerous than other places. Uh, you know, again, uh, you will see in many neighborhoods little children walking around, even at night. I don't know why they're not asleep, but whatever it is. Uh, so, you know, you gotta, you know, I'm not telling you to be uh, irresponsible, but for someone to say it is so dangerous to live here is not realistic. Now, there are parts of Israel, you know, I, I wouldn't tell you to move to Hebron or, or whatever, whatever it would be, or the Mount, even the Mount of Olives, but, you know, within uh, the regular places that people live, Baruch Hashem, uh, and we pray it should continue to be so. In fact, you can move to Trump Heights if you want for the Golan, right? <laughs> New community named after Trump. And and, and, and and the like. So okay, uh, but but the point I'm making is, maybe today pikuach nefesh is not a valid argument, but in Ramban's time, it may have been a good argument. Pikuach nefesh. Now there's a second reason that may be applied, and that is, in Ramban's time, there was no telephone, there was no telegraph, there was no email. This is the second possible. Second possible reason. Second, the Ramban. Very few Jews lived in Israel at the time. And Ramban was needed by the Jewish communities. I mean, even the Rebbe himself, people ask the Rebbe right, many right. times, why doesn't he come to Israel? And the Rebbe basic, basically said, uh, well, he didn't want to visit Israel because he took the position if he would visit, he wouldn't be allowed to leave. That's, one, that's why he wouldn't visit. But in terms of moving, he said, if, it's, if most of his most of his Hasidim are not there, he has to be where the Hasidim are. Now, that even applied today when we have communication. But in the 1200s, you certainly needed to be. You were needed by the Jewish people. And if you're needed by the Jewish people, you have a responsibility. You know, the Chafetz Chaim in the 20th century, the 20th century, wanted to go to, wanted to, go to Eretz Israel. And the Gedolim, the great rabbis of the generation, came to him and said, you're not allowed to leave us. We need you to be here. And back in, in a smaller way, this is something that, uh, you know, rabbis face. You know, if you're a, let's say you're a rabbi of a shul or a rabbinson or a teacher. And, you know, you want to make aliyah, you want to live in Eretz Israel. But you have a shul or a school that kind of depends on you. Sometimes, you have to set aside your own individual mitzvah because the congregation or the community needs you. That's why a shaliach will remain uh, where they are, even though they perhaps would want to come to Eretz Israel. So in the case of the Ramban, it was certainly that type of thing. Now, realistically, you have to be modest, meaning to say, uh, <laughs> sometimes, you know, you are replaceable, meaning to say, I can't leave, I can't leave because without me, Judaism is going to be totally destroyed. Sometimes that's true. No, sometimes it's not, you know. <laughs> Somebody else could, could do just a good job. They say rabbis don't like going on vacation because they're worried about two things. One is their community will fall apart. And the other is they'll do fantastic. <laughs> either, either thing worries you, you know, so to speak. But so th these are two, again, these are speculations. I don't have a proof for them. But the two reasons were even though Ramban took the position that halachically you're supposed to live in Israel, he did not do so until he was forced 
either, these are alternatives, either uh, it was so dangerous to both travel and live in Israel. It was like a war zone. This is during the Crusades, right? The, the later Crusades. So Muslims are fighting, uh, are fighting Christians and Jews are in the middle. And everybody hates the Jews. That's the common denominator between the Muslims and the Christians. It was very, very dangerous. Pikuach Nefesh, which wouldn't apply today. Or because the Ramban was the leading rabbi and spiritual authority of all the Jews in Europe, he had a responsibility to them not to leave them, not to abandon them, and therefore he needed to stay put. Yeah? No, that's Maimonides. Ra- Rambam did. Right, Rambam. Yes, that's correct. Okay. Um, so if that's the case, and we see disputes between him and another great rabbi, so Oh, okay. That, that's, an, that's an excellent point. Uh, he doesn't necessarily have the authority. When I said he codified the oral law, it, it means he gave us a ruling on every case that's in the Talmud. But his ruling is not necessarily accepted as the final ruling. But the greatness is that he did cover everything. He, he addressed every single area. Meaning, most great rabbis wrote on some selected areas. Some wrote on Shabbos, some wrote on Kashras, some wrote on different areas. Rambam codified everything. Uh, that's an excellent point. Uh, what is the process by, when you have arguments in halacha? What determines? So really, there's a very long process, meaning it, it goes into the Shulchan Aruch, which came later, and commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch. And uh, it, it's a process in which rabbis over many generations debated and qualified until there's kind of a halachic consensus that emerges. But I will tell you this, to, be, to, be, to give you a, a very simple, simplified answer. It turns out that Sephardim, you know, Sephardic Jews, largely follow the Rambam's view. And Ashkenazic Jews uh, will differ with the Rambam's view based on the traditions that came in terms of understanding things. So the Shulchan Aruch, which is followed by Sephardim, uh, almost always follows the Rambam. And the Ramah, who wrote the Ashkenazic comments, to the Shulchan Aruch will often argue with the Rambam. Uh, now that's a simplification, but that's kind of it. So when the Rebbe, when the Rebbe urged people to learn the Rambam, he was not saying because we follow the Rambam. We actually often don't. Ashkenazim don't. Chabad often doesn't. But he felt that the Rambam was a good way to understand the totality of Jewish life. Not the bottom line, but to understand the structure of it. You see, it may sound funny to say, oh, even though we don't follow it, it's a good work to learn, but learning halachic works is not always to know what to do. It's kind of to get an understanding of an overall structure. And the Rambam's work is very orderly, very clear. He connects things. So even if there's rules here and there that we don't follow, but you get an understanding of the system. That's why the Rebbe uh, liked the Rambam so much. Yeah. Okay, so speaking of following something, yeah. um, I've heard that the Rebbe didn't like have the same opinion about being moving to Israel. And I'm not really sure what the opinion is. Like a kind of like maybe. Well, 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 well remember, uh, ultimately it is an argument between Rambam and Ramban. Mm-hmm. And the Rebbe, as well as many other people, uh, said the halach is mainly like the Rambam on this. On this 
particular issue. So that's really it. I mean, everything I'm talking about is presupposing Ramban's view, but that's yeah. only one, one view. There is the other side of the equation. And uh, most, now, I, I want to point out another thing. I, I'm going to elaborate on this because obviously most of today was an introduction or at least uh, some preliminary information. Do not confuse the mitzvah of living in the land of Israel with having a Jewish state. These are two different fundamental questions. Ramban did not, well, actually he did, but, but, but many say there's a mitzvah to live here even without a Jewish state. Those are two different issues, okay? And we'll, we'll separate them, we'll discuss it more at length, but don't confuse that, right? Statehood and living in Israel are two different things. For example, the Ture Karta, which is the movement of people, some people think are crazy, who totally deny the legitimacy of the state of Israel, but many of them, where do they live? They live here, and they consider it to be a mitzvah to live here. In fact, you can tell when a sefer is printed by Neturi Karta. I'll, I'll tell you, how do you know if the author is Neturi Karta? I'll give you a way of telling. Uh, if a book is printed in Israel, it always says printed in Israel, right, in English? But sometimes it says printed in E period Israel. That stands for printed in Eretz Israel. So when you see printed in E period Israel, that means the author is Neturi Karta. He's not going to say printed in Israel because Israel is the name of a state which he does not recognize. Eretz Israel, okay, Eretz Israel is, is the Torah's name for this land. Right? So that shows you. Another hint about authorship. Whenever the author's name is an initial, that means she was a woman. Uh, so you have sometimes very erudite svarim written by a Yud Goldman or something. So that's Yehudit Goldman or whatever, whatever it would be. So because in the Haredi world, right? In the, in the Haredi world, uh, there are very talented women authors who are also very learned. But whatever it is, uh, they will not put their full name. Uh, out there. So when you see initials, it's a woman. When you see E Israel, it's a Turi card. Yeah. Can you elaborate on what you're saying that the Rebbe held that if he came, he would be able to leave? Yeah. Yes, because there's another halacha. In fact, this whole question about tour tourism. I mean, obviously, most Jews, if they can afford it, they like to take trips to Israel. The Rebbe was not such a fan of taking trips to Israel because there is a rule that once a person in Israel, they're only allowed to leave for extenuating circumstances, to find a wife if the man is not married, to learn Torah if he needs a yeshiva that's in Chutzlaretz, or for Parnassah to make a living. In fact, yeah, the truth of the matter is, even Israelis, sometimes rabbis will tell many Israelis, you're not supposed to go back and forth just to take trips. It's one thing if you're going to visit your parents, you know, that's a good thing, etc. So I, I don't want to scare you. I know some of you are only here for six weeks. I, I don't want to... Uh, uh, now, again, the Rebbe didn't pass in this way for everybody, but he himself, he wanted to follow a stricter view that you don't leave Eretz Yisrael unless you have a very extenuating circumstance. As I say, most people are more lenient, and as I say, he did not give this as a hurrah. He did not give this as an instruction to his chassidim, uh, but he himself would, was very, very strict. He would not enter Eretz Yisrael and then leave it. Yeah. Um, uh, so, like, a conversation was kind of about, like, just do, like, if, like, 
living in Israel is a commandment or it isn't. And so, like, obviously a good thing to live in when yes. Israel. Um, but I just was curious, like, is there any kind of hierarchy of commandments in that today? Like, are certain mitzvot more important than others that are all on the same level? Well, Pirkei Avos says we have to treat all mitzvot the same. But the truth of the matter is, we'll talk about this next week. Uh, there, by definition, there is a certain hierarchy. So, for example, uh, if a person, again, you have to work this out, if a person feels they will learn Torah better with a certain teacher who lives outside of Israel, so the mitzvah of learning Torah from the best possible teacher may outweigh the mitzvah of coming to Eretz Israel. Uh, and this is also an issue. I'll tell you one of the major issues. I mean, you're young. You don't have these problems yet. But one of the major issues of parents with children, particularly adolescent children, is it is very difficult. You may remember being adolescents not so long ago. Uh, it's very, very difficult to uproot adolescent, uproot teenagers to a totally new environment. Yeah. They often do not adjust well. And this is a very different culture. It's a, I mean, although it's English speaking, you know, it's not as foreign as, you know, a real foreign country, but it is a different culture. Language is a big issue. Personalities are different. Uh, students are more aggressive here than perhaps they would be in, uh, of course, depends where, which public school you, you go to. So sometimes parents are advised not to move to Eretz Israel uh, once their kids are in high school because the adjustment will be very, very, very difficult. So in a sense, we do understand, and I'll talk about it more next week, that you sometimes sometimes have to balance priorities. Another issue I'll just mention is elderly parents. Mm -hmm. This is a biggie. Yeah. Now, obviously, parents never want their kids to make aliyah. Mm -hmm. Almost never, because they're gonna, not going to see the grand. They don't care about you, but they care about your children. They care about the grandchildren and, uh, and the like. And it is very, very clear in halacha that living in Israel does override honoring parents. So even if your parents want you to be there, be there, you, you come. But, but, that doesn't end the question. Even if parents don't have a veto, but if they really need you, they need you, you are, of course, not allowed to abandon them. So it's a subtle difference. If they're, like, young and healthy, 45-year-olds, and they just don't want you to go, so, you know, you can decide you want to go. But if, you know, if they're elderly, if they're frail, uh, you know, it's not an easy question. You have to be very, very careful. You can't just abandon your parents <coughs> because you have a dream of living in, in Israel. Yeah. Also, what you just said, what if it's your grandparents? Like, they have their children still, but what if? Yeah, so uh, I think there's less of a reason to, uh, to, to stay back, meaning if you're a ch children, uh, have to consider their parents. I think uh, grandchildren are less obligated towards their grandparents if their children, if their parents who had the children are there. And then also, um, I know when, or I heard when Mashiach comes, the whole world is going to be Israel and then uh, like the actual country or the land of Israel is going to be like Jerusalem or yeah. something like that. Yeah. So, like, Time is fluid, so you know, like. So you, so you can say, "I'll stay, I'll stay where I am, and that'll become that'll become Israel, Israel eventually." Right? <laughs> That's what somebody said. Uh, you know, there's a big yeshiva in in Yerushalayim called the Mir Yeshiva, which is gigantic, and they keep on building new buildings. So they tell the story that somebody was wandering in Mea Sharim, and they wanted to know where is the Mir Yeshiva. So the person told them, 
just stand still. It'll come to you. It'll come to you pretty soon. So you say, Eretz Yisrael will come to us. <laughs> are we going to talk about this more next week? Yes, I have we a are. Lot of questions. Oh, yeah, of course, of course, yeah. Okay. Uh, so we're going to continue this because, again, obviously we only scratch the, the surface. I just want to introduce the machlokas, the arguments, so you're just aware of the two pivotal opinions on this matter. Okay, see you all next week. Yay. Yay.